Thanks, Nick, and thanks, Shane, for reading to us this morning. Guys, keep your Bibles open. That would be a great thing to do. Uh, Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, Let me add my welcome to Nick's. Uh, And if you're new or visiting with us, then it's great to have you with us this morning, particularly on such a wet day. Uh, I wanted to say two things before I kick off this morning. One is to say that we're going to actually have a question time uh, at the end of the talk this morning. So if you... uh, any questions that you want to write down as uh, where you're listening this morning, please do that and there'll be a chance to answer your, ask your questions in a little bit. I also just wanted to inform you, uh, many of you will know Yvonne Jones, uh, who lives just two doors down. Um, she's been coming to our church in a wheelchair uh, for a couple, almost two years. Um, became a Christian last year, wonderful work of God in her life, um, but passed away this week on Wednesday and uh, uh, she had a stroke on Sunday last week, I think it was, or one day last week, and then passed away this Wednesday, and her funeral will be on Friday at uh, Eastern Suburbs Crematorium. So, um, uh, yes, I'm just letting you know, but as I pray for us as we hear God's word, I'll also be praying uh, for those who are mourning the loss of Yvonne. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Yvonne, and we thank you, Lord God, that your gospel reached her that you in your love uh, enabled her to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as her own Lord and Saviour. And so, Father, while we grieve over Yvonne, we don't grieve as those without hope. We are thankful to you that she is in your, he- in your care. Thank you, Lord God, for those who have been caring for her, uh, both at the hospital but also her relatives, and for the marvellous way in which they've done that. Please uh, comfort them in their grief and give them uh, the, the opportunity, Father, to hear of the love of Jesus that Yvonne came to know about, we pray. For us, as we uh, listen to your word today, give us ears to hear what you speak to us by your spirit through your word, and we ask it in his name. Amen. Well, uh, let me ask you, is there anywhere that you think the gospel can't reach? Uh, is there anyone that you think the gospel can't transform? Uh, Are there any barriers where you don't think the gospel could ever break through? Uh, Because the gospel is, of course, life-changing news that Jesus Christ is Lord of heaven and earth and he is the saviour of all who come to him. Now, I've I've told this story many times personally, but I thought it was relevant for today. And so uh, I'm going to relay to you a conversation that I had Uh, probably about 12 to 14 years ago now, uh, I was speaking with a lady after church one Sunday and I knew that she'd been praying for and trying to share the gospel with her non-believing sister and her husband. And so I asked her on this particular Sunday how it was going, had there been any opportunities to share Christ with her? And I was a little startled because she said to me, I've given up on them. Uh, I've been praying for them for five years and they just don't want to listen. And so they're a lost cause, I'm not trying anymore. Uh, And I remember that conversation, probably because of another conversation I had that same day in the afternoon with my father. Uh, Because he rang me, uh, very excited, Uh, and if my memory serves me correctly, there were probably even a a few tears of joy. Um, But his brother, my uncle, had rung him that morning to say that he had given his life to the Lord Jesus. And what struck me immediately was... Uh, is that my dad had been praying for his brother since he had walked away from God at around about 18 years of age. And on this day that he rang to tell me uh, that his brother had accepted Jesus, 
He was 80 years old. Uh, For over 60 years, my dad had prayed for and shared his faith with his brother. Wasn't he glad that he didn't give up? Is there anyone that the gospel can't transform? My uncle looked like he was one of them. Are there any barriers where the gospel cannot break through? And today's passage, I think, answers those questions emphatically. Uh, We're going to see three things, that God's gospel cannot be stopped. We've seen that already in the kids' talk. uh, And that God cannot be used. And that God's gospel can overcome every barrier. But before we get there, I just want to take a moment to remind us what the book of Acts is all about. Because Stephen's speech... Uh, who you remember became the first Christian martyr. We saw it in chapter 7 last week. Chapter 7 in Stephen's speech is actually a turning point in Acts. And so I thought I'd ask the question this morning, what is Luke, uh, the author, trying to tell us? What is this book all about? Well, as we've already begun to see, it's a description of the extraordinary events that turned the gospel, or that remember that 120 people who were left as followers of Jesus after Jesus had died and risen from the dead, It's the extraordinary events that turn that small group of 120 people into a worldwide, multinational, wildfire-like mission, transforming the world. That mission which saw the nations reached with the life-changing news about Jesus. We've seen each week uh, that Acts chapter 1 verse 8 is the summary verse of the whole book. You can see it there on the screen. The risen Jesus says to this... And then we read on uh, in the book of Acts, in chapter 2, the Holy Spirit comes, remember, and they started speaking of the mighty works of Christ. Then in verse 36 of chapter 2, the Apostle Peter says to the crowds quite boldly, you killed Jesus, but God has made him Lord in Christ. And then suddenly the 120 disciples were joined by 3,000 others in one day. And a little further down in in verse 42 of chapter 2, we see this growing group of disciples devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and the prayers, etc. And then by verse 47 of chapter 2, we read, and the Lord added to their number daily. All kinds of people were being saved. But none of it was easy, remember? Uh, There was opposition, sinfulness, uh, both outside and inside the church, persecution. But the gospel was growing in Jerusalem. And then last week we saw the powerful witness of Stephen, which ended in him being stoned, that is, rocks thrown at him until he died. And it begs the question, has this promising start to Christianity come to an end ever so soon? Because as we come to the beginning of Acts chapter 8, it sure looks like it. I mean, look at, let's pick it up from verse 1 of chapter 8. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And then down in verse 3, But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Can you imagine what that would be like? I mean, here is a serious threat to the future of the gospel, to the future of Christianity, just as it's getting started. The authorities are stepping in to shut it down. It's hard to imagine, isn't it, people uh, wanting to put their lives on the line to tell people about Jesus. But you see, here's Luke's point. God's gospel cannot be stopped. Uh, The whole mission of Jesus looks to be on the brink of failure. But have a look at the next verse, verse 4 there. Now those who were scattered because of persecution went about preaching the word. 
And so as we come to chapter 8 today, we need to see it as the application of chapter 7. Because as Stephen finishes his sermon in chapter 7, and the angry mob is rushing at him to stone him, he sees the, we're told that he sees the heavens opened and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. That is, he sees Jesus enthroned as Lord of all, as ruler over everything and everyone. See, God is, in that moment, they said God is not the possession of the Jews, only accessible in the temple in Jerusalem. God cannot be contained. All the blessings of God are found in Jesus. You know, life, hope, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, only in Jesus. And so Stephen's speech is a, a turning point. It acts as a, a final judgment on the nation of Israel for their hardness of heart and their rebellion against God before the nations are welcomed in to the people of God. See, up until now, all the Christians are in Jerusalem. Uh, but in chapter 8, notice all that changes. The apostles who were, had been sent out with the gospel, they stayed in Jerusalem. While the crowds who are being scattered by persecution, fleeing, were taking the gospel with them. The gospel actually can't be stopped by persecution. In, in this case, it actually means, it's actually the means of it going out. You know, I was listening to a sermon by William Taylor from St. Helens in London on this passage, and he told a story about him going to a minister's conference in Nicaragua, uh, where while he was there, he, he met a bunch of ministers from Nigeria, particularly the southern part of Nigeria. One of the ministers had arrived at the conference straight from three days in prison, and they were talking about the persecution that was happening up in northern Nigeria. Christians uh, are in serious danger up there. Their properties were being confiscated or burned. Their farmland was being taken from them. Girls were being raped or abducted to be Muslim brides. And William asked them, what are you going to do about it? And their response was that they were going to go up there to preach the gospel to them because it was the only thing that could save them. Now, we kind of think that those kind of stories, those kind of things only happen in the Bible. But it's happening in our world today. The gospel may be opposed, but it cannot be stopped. And it's ironic, isn't it, that Saul, the leader of this persecution, he's soon to become Paul, who's going to be the apostle to the Gentiles, but he's already being used by God to spread the gospel, even as God's enemy. It kind of reminds us of the words of the patriarch Joseph, doesn't it? I mean, Joseph, remember, sold into slavery by his brothers in Egypt, but raised up by God to eventually save his whole family. And we read his words in Genesis chapter 50, where he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. God is sovereign. He even brings good out of evil. The gospel cannot and will not be stopped, not by persecution, not by racial hatred, as was the case with the Samaritans. Uh, let me just pick it up from verse 5 there. Now, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard. Now, the Samaritans, uh, you might not even realize, but they still exist today. Uh, though they may be the smallest religious group that still exists in the world, there are evidently around about 860 Samaritans uh, still left in the world. They're only allowed to marry other Samaritans, uh, and so they struggle with genetic diseases like blindness and the like. 
But where did they come from? Well, they came from, if you might remember, the split between you know, the 12 tribes of Israel and the split between the 10 northern tribes and the two southern tribes, which became known as Judah in the 8th century BC. Uh, instead of remaining faithful to King David's monarchy, they set up their own competing monarchy. Uh, eventually, they were conquered by Assyria and they intermarried with the peoples around them, which was no good for a nation that had been, uh, that was supposed to be totally separate and set apart for God. And so the Samaritans uh, become the half-caste Israelites. I mean, they still tried to keep the covenant of Moses, but they would reject the rest of the Old Testament. So there was no love lost between the Samaritans and the Jews. They hated each other. Uh, could a Samaritan be saved? Well, a Jew would say no. And so it's remarkable what's happening here in Acts chapter 8, uh, Philip, a Jewish Christian, escaping persecution in, persecution in Jerusalem, goes to Samaria, of all places, to share the good news of Jesus with them. It's kind of like a Nigerian Christian, instead of hating his Muslim enemy, going to share the gospel with him so that he could be saved. And they, that is the Samaritans, notice, were embracing the Jewish Messiah. They were embracing Jesus. Jesus... Uh, a commission in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 actually doesn't wait until the apostles are ready to include Samaria. And Jesus' mission moves forward through Philip. And so when the news filters back to the apostles in Jerusalem, they send Peter and John to check it out. See verse 14? Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, can I say, it's uh, great news, that's a fantastic little passage, but unfortunately this kind of glorious passage that authenticates Jesus' lordship over every person has actually led to some controversy. Uh, so let me just pause to recognise that. Because there are some who see in this little passage here two stages of Christianity. Um, so, for example, Roman Catholics, um, they get their idea of confirmation from these verses. A person believes in Jesus and is baptised, but then they need the bishop, who is supposed to be in the line of the apostles, to come and lay their hands on them to confirm them and give them the Holy Spirit. Uh, Pentecostals, on the other hand, also kind of see two stages, but they see it differently. That is, the first stage is conversion. Uh, they, they may, a person might receive the Holy Spirit, but they only have, this, have Jesus as Saviour, not as Lord. Uh, so they don't have the power of the Holy Spirit. And so the second stage is to receive the pouring out of the Spirit to empower you to witness, to live, to speak in tongues, whatever. They may even call it the baptism of the Holy Spirit. But without this second blessing, you don't have the fullness of the Holy Spirit. The question is, um, is the Samaritan experience the normal Christian experience, or is, is this something unique that is happening here? Because as you th read through Acts and the rest of the New Testament, the normal experience is for someone to believe in Jesus and to receive the Holy Spirit as one stage. Now we see it back in Acts chapter 2 verse 38 where Peter says, you believe and repent and believe in Jesus and you'll receive the Holy Spirit. Or in Acts chapter 10 verses 44 to 48 where the Gentiles become for the first time Christians. 
And nowhere in the New Testament letters is it ever taught as a two-stage kind of coming to Christ. And so the Samaritan event doesn't give us a pattern of the normal Christian experience. These are Samaritans who are coming to Christ for the very first time. The gospel is breaking out of Jerusalem and the apostles come to verify this work of the gospel, to authenticate it. And so by receiving the Holy Spirit at the hands of the apostles, it demonstrated that both Jews and Samaritans are of one family of Christ, all included together. Well, before we move on to our last section, notice that Luke has highlighted one particular Samaritan here. Uh, His name is Simon. Uh, He claims to be someone great in verse 9. He does some pretty impressive magic and it earns him quite a following. Look at verse 10 there. And they all paid attention to him, that is Simon, from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called, he likes being in the limelight. And while Jesus tells us in the Gospels that the greatest person in the kingdom of God is the one who serves, Simon just wants the power and prestige. He sees the apostles giving the spirit by laying on of their hands, and that's some action that he wants to be a part of. And so he offers them money. He wants to buy the power of God. But look at verse 20. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. You can't buy God. Uh, You can't manipulate God for your own ends. You can't use your money or anything else to put God in your debt. Only Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And the salvation that he offers is a gift to everyone, to all those who will humbly repent and turn to him and accept his salvation. So if you have simply put your trust in Jesus as your saviour and your Lord, then you have Jesus dwelling within you by his Holy Spirit. It doesn't matter who you are or where you've come from. If you put your trust in Jesus, you belong fully to him. You're accepted completely. There's no barrier that the gospel cannot overcome. And that's true even for the one who might be considered a complete outsider, like the person that we see next in this passage, the Ethiopian eunuch. Uh, Let me just pick it up in verse 26. Uh, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was from the upper reaches of the Nile near Sudan. Uh, This guy is a high-ranking official in Queen Candace's court. Uh, He's the kind of the Josh Frydenberg of Ethiopia, for example. And he was in some way, notice, a God-fearer because he has travelled an extraordinary distance in in probably um, an ox-driven chariot, maybe a horse's, I'm not sure, to worship God in the temple, which was pretty much a waste of time because he was a eunuch. I mean, eunuchs had been castrated, or they may have been born that way. Their genitals had been removed, and so they, would, they, would, they, they did it deliberately so that they would concentrate on their job 
and not on the queen or her maidservants. And so as important as he was in the position that he held, he could never be admitted into the Jewish temple because he was damaged. And so having travelled like halfway around the world to worship God in the temple, he gets there and he has to stand outside. He couldn't get into the temple in Jerusalem. But he did get into the presence of God, we'll see. Because as he's travelling home, he's, he's reading the Bible, he's got the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah wrote centuries before Jesus came into the world and he predicted what Jesus would do and he did it. And Luke tells us that as he was reading Isaiah, that it, well, that he was reading Isaiah 53, which is, of course, one of the most magnificent chapters in the Old Testament, and this is what he was reading. Notice there in verse 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And so, uh, as we read, God had orchestrated for Philip to come up alongside the chariot, hear him speaking, and he asks him, do you understand what you're reading? And he invites him up into the chariot to explain what the passage is all about. And Philip explained to him all about Jesus. And, and so, as he looks, at starting this passage in Isaiah, uh, he explains to him about Jesus that even though we are all sinful people, our sin was laid on Jesus. He took our sin on himself willingly. He went as a lamb silently before his years and he voluntarily gave himself to be crucified unjustly for our sin. And no doubt he went on to say, but that he has been risen from the dead, vindicated, and he now offers forgiveness, acceptance, inclusion, peace, and real joy. And he offers it to anyone who repents and trusts in Jesus. There's no barrier that he hasn't or cannot overcome. And so right there and then, as they pass by some water, he's, he's baptised into the name of Jesus. Is there any reason why I shouldn't be baptised? No, there's not. He's come into the presence of God, welcomed as a family member into Christ's eternal kingdom. No more separation, no, more, no longer an outsider, See, God is always reaching out to people. And maybe he's reaching out deliberately to you today. I don't know if you picked it up, but at every step of the way here, God was orchestrating this opportunity for the Ethiopian to hear and to respond to the gospel. It was God, remember, who used persecution in Jerusalem to get the gospel out to Samaria. And perhaps you're here today because God wants you to know that he loves you. That there's a place for you in his kingdom. That no matter who you are or where you're from or what you've done, Jesus died for you. Will you turn back to him? Because it'll be worth it more than you can ever imagine. And did you see the response of the eunuch or the Samaritans when they understood that God was welcoming them in? And verse 39, notice, the Ethiopian eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Uh, back in verse 8 of chapter 8, as Jesus reaches out to the Samaritans, we read there, so there was Jesus. So rejoice if you belong to Jesus. Forgiveness in Christ, rejoice. Acceptance through Christ, rejoice. 
Peace with God, rejoice. Hope for the future, rejoice. Eternally loved, rejoice. No need to fear, rejoice. Every spiritual blessing now and every imaginable blessing for the future in Christ, rejoice. I don't think we rejoice enough at all. Everything we have in Lord Jesus Christ, do you think that we rejoice enough? We so often take it for granted, don't we? Acts is showing us that there are no barriers to the gospel. But I don't think we're always convinced about that either. I wonder where you think are the places or who are the people whom the gospel can't reach. I mean, if we looked around our world, maybe we'd think Muslims can't be reached. They don't want to accept Jesus Christ as saviour. Maybe it's the gay or transgender lobby. But maybe it's more simple than that. Maybe it's your work colleagues. Maybe you think they'd never want to hear of Jesus. Maybe it's your family. Are you praying for those people or places that you feel the gospel cannot break into? See, everything that stopped people from worshipping God has been removed. Nothing can stop the power of the gospel changing people's lives. And the book of Acts actually reminds us that the gospel is going to spread out across the world. Indeed, it is doing that. It's unstoppable. But I guess if I was asked to ask you one more question, it would be this one. Are you willing to be like Philip? I mean, Philip wasn't a major player in the Bible. This is the only time we really hear much about him at all. But he was a willing servant. He was willing to be an instrument in God's hands, despite persecution, to share the gospel with anyone, even his enemies. How might you be an instrument in God's hands today? Are you willing to be? Why don't we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you have broken down the barriers that we have erected before you so that you have entered into our hearts and drawn us into fellowship with you. Thank you, Father, that you were willing to make us your friends even when we were your enemies. Father, thank you that the gospel is powerful to save and thank you, Lord God, that um, every one of us here knows people who don't know Jesus but they do know us. And we know Jesus. So please, Father, help us, give us the courage, the strength, the belief that to share the good news of Jesus is a wonderful thing to do in loving those who don't yet know you. Please help us as we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.